Good morning. I uh, want to add my welcome to Shaka's welcome, especially to those of you who are here for the first time today. Uh, it's, it is always a pleasure to see people we don't know out here worshiping with us and hearing from God's word. And uh, one of the things that we want to make sure you know if you're visiting for the first time, perhaps as someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus, but considering what it means to follow Jesus, I want you to know that uh, one of the most important things Christians believe is that the God who made us has actually spoken to us. And he's not just spoken to us in the things that he made. There are things we can learn about him from looking at the beauty of the world around us. He's actually spoken to us in words that we can read and understand, that we can hear and be, and be impacted by. Words that we can respond to in a kind of conversation with him. And we believe as Christians that, that God has spoken to us primarily through his son Jesus, who we learn about through his word, the Bible. So the first thing I want to do before we talk about part of what the Bible says this morning is invite you to take a copy of it. If you're here visiting with us and you you haven't experienced much of the Bible, maybe you don't own a copy of the Bible, every week we provide copies that we hope you'll take. Uh, They're at the center of each aisle up under the chairs. You can grab one or flag somebody down who's sitting over them. Uh, They can pass one to you. We would love for you to take that. It makes us so happy when those things disappear. Uh, and we would not only love for you to take it, we'd love to talk to you about what's there and, and especially to, to break down maybe further what, what you're going to hear this morning if any of it doesn't make sense to you. Um, so please take that with you. We are, we are not going to be walking through one particular part of the Bible this morning in the way that we normally would on a Sunday morning because as Shaka mentioned earlier in his prayer, this morning we are actually introducing a new series that's going to carry us through the summer, a series on a type of material in the Bible that's known as Lament. Uh, we, uh, we will be, starting next week, covering individual portions of the scriptures that are examples of lament, how it works in practice, what it sounds like to lament before God in the midst of suffering. But this morning, what we want to make sure is that, you, uh, is that you understand what that type of material looks like and how to use it for yourself, a kind of benchmark that you can come back to later on in the series that will help you deal with the individual passage we're going to cover later. So I'm going to be doing more of a topical introduction to the series this morning, a little bit different from, from what we normally would do. So it's the uh, unofficial beginning of summer this weekend, Memorial Day weekend, summertime is here, they, it's, a, it's a weekend when people relax, a season in which people take time off of work and go travel to paradise, sit on the beach and read. It's the season when people go for lightweight action blockbusters and try to take their mind off the heavy things of life. And that's why we decided, why don't we do a preaching series on lament? And let's start it on Memorial Day weekend. Why not? Countercultural. That's us here at Trinity Church, Nashville. Uh, Lament is a a, a genre of the Bible that's become really, really precious to me, and I'm hoping it will to you by the end of our time together. What lament means, uh, in the the words of one writer who's written a book about it, lament is a, a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. Now, that, you could get that out of Webster's Dictionary as if the Bible doesn't even exist. So, so biblical lament, I'm going to build on that, a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. To build on that with what, what the Bible brings to lament is, is a, a passionate expression of grief and sorrow directed toward God with questions asked of God and big things hoped for from God. The Bible is full of rich, blunt, honest anguish over the pain of God's people. It's full of it. Old and New Testaments. Tortured questions about why things happen the way they do. 
But, but, but in the Bible, this honesty, this bluntness, this straightforward talk about what's wrong is always uh, part of a process. It's always moving from the pain and the grief that, that's honestly expressed in lament to hope that, that God can actually do something about it, that the promises he's made will actually prove true. So biblical lament is part of a journey that starts with, with rugged and ruthless honesty about the pain you're living with, but moves toward hope in the God who can make all things new. And what, what I hope, one of the things I hope for from this series is that, is that maybe it'll correct a misunderstanding you may have about the Bible and about what, to, what God's people should expect from their lives. Uh, it, it, it may be that, that you, you think that, that our experience now and how good it is is meant as a kind of sign of whether God's for us or not, God's favor. Certainly people have thought that. And there are even texts in the Bible that you could misread and apply that way. That if God is for you, if, if you've been what you should be, then God will reward that behavior with, with a life that's full of ease and comfort and, and plenty. I mean, if you read some texts out of context, you could get that from the Bible. And certainly many Christians have believed that throughout the ages. But that's not what God's people have experienced at all. The Bible's full of a record of God's people struggling, suffering, wondering what he's doing and why. And in the, in the language of lament, the Bible offers us a tool that we need today because we should expect to experience what God's people always have. In every generation before ours, God's people have suffered. We will not be the exception. More than that, though, we, we need these tools that lament offers us because hey, we're suffering right now. There are people sitting all over this room right now, tormented by pain and by questions that they wake up with and go to sleep with every night. People many of you know about, many others that you, you don't know about. The room is full of pain. It's not hypothetical for us. And what we want for our congregation is to get better at walking through pain together. When, when, when Christians come to our congregation and decide to make this their congregation, to join our church as members, we, we promise a set of promises to one another that we call our church covenant. And one of the most important promises in there is that we promise we will rejoice and mourn together. That, that each other's experience will affect us. That when one grieves, all grieve. But that's easier said than done. That takes practice. That takes intentionality. Uh, that takes tools. It's not intuitive to know how to, to be with someone in their pain. And many of us, many of what comes natural to us, many of our intuitions are just wrong. And they just, they, they lead to more pain for our friends and to shame and disappointment for ourselves when we fail them. So, so what we're gonna do this summer through, through trying to, walk through the Bible's teaching on lament is improve our tools. Add to our ability to love each other through pain well, carefully, intelligently. So what I want to do this morning to that end is, is overview the series. I want to give you a sense of what's coming and how to make the most of these weeks together. I want to do that in just a few simple steps. And I want to begin with making sure you're clear on where lament comes from. 
because lament in the Bible comes from a very specific place, a very unique kind of experience that only a believer can have. I want to start there. And I want to mention um, uh, a couple of resources along the way at certain points this morning. I'm going to mention some resources that I think would be helpful companion reading for you as we go through this series through the summer. And, and on where lament comes from, I'm going to start with one particular resource. A couple of years ago, we studied the book of Job together. Um, Job is a phenomenal piece of literature. You owe it to yourself to read this book if you haven't. It's the story of a man who had everything anyone could want and he lost it all for no reason that he could see. His family was killed. His wealth was taken. Even his health failed and he was covered head to toe with painful sores. And he experienced all this not because he made some foolish decision, not because he had offered some sort of false worship that God had to correct through punishment, not because he had lost his faith. He just lost everything. And, and he, the book ends with him never knowing why he lost everything. Much of the book is, is a record of his anguish, his back and forth with friends who don't get it but think they do. Friends who come and try to comfort him by bringing some clarity to his situation. And their heart's in the right place, but they're terrible at this. And much of the book is a back and forth between him and his friends where, where the Bible, through the, the experience of Job, is modeling what not to do to someone who's, who's in anguish. And the, beyond what his friends offer, there's just Job praying to God, just reflecting on what he's going through without answers, without clarity, just being where he is. It's a fantastic example of biblical lament. There's a wonderful resource that's going to be on the resource table. It's a book on Job. It's sermons from a faithful pastor across the pond over in England, a guy named Christopher Ash. One of my favorite books in the last few years. Be a great for your devotional reading alongside this series this summer if you want to bring a little lament into your summer reading. Uh, Job, the wisdom from the cross is going to be back on the resource table. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, we will not be returning to Job throughout this series. I bring it up because I think it might be a good companion for you. And I bring it up now because this story is a great example of where lament is born, where it comes from. And here's what I want you to know about where lament comes from. When, back when we were talking about Job a few years ago, one writer that, that I read for that series emphasized something about Job's situation I think is really helpful for us this morning. For, for Job... And for all believers throughout time, suffering is not just a tragedy. It is that, but it's more. It's not just a tragedy. It's a, it's a particular kind of problem. Suffering makes sense to Israel's neighbors. They had a pagan view of the world. Pagan meaning they, that, that the world was full of gods for them. That, that there were powers behind everything that happened. And those powers weren't all on the same page. They were often fighting with one another. And you wanted to make sure you were going to be on the right side of whatever power was going to have the upper hand in that struggle. So for Israel's neighbors, suffering made sense. It's a contest of gods. Your gods lost. Bet on the right horse next time. And for many today, in a less pagan environment, more secular, suffering still makes sense. In terms of Darwinian survival of the fittest look, outlook on the world, where where nature's red and tooth and claw and the powerful take what they want when they want it suffering makes sense the powerful always prey on the weak why should we be surprised that that more than one in ten girls are abused sexually before they're 18 
Tragedy makes sense to an unbeliever, but to the believer, there's a special anguish that comes from this sort of pain. It isn't just a tragedy. It's a problem. Where was God? He's powerful, according to his word. He's loving, according to his word. His word says that he doesn't slumber or sleep, that he lives to watch out for his own. So where is he? Lament comes from the gap between what we experience and what we believe about God. That's where lament comes from. From a gap between our experience of the world and what we believe about God based on his word. Or as another writer put it, lament is born between pain and promise. The pain we experience and the promises God has made to us of his love, provision, protection, and his, his ability to make all things new. And lament, born between pain and promise, is how we put words to what we're experiencing. It's how we add words to the torment, to the anguish, to the back and forth we feel in our wondering about where God is and what he's doing. It's for when we don't understand what's happening and why it's happening and when we wish it wasn't happening. So lament is not something you need Friends, when you shoot an 85 rather than a 72 on the golf course, that's not where lament comes in. It's not for when you get the B rather than the A on your paper. There's a kind of entitlement and discontent that the, that the Bible actually condemns. It sees as a, as a lack of faith. It tells us to avoid it. And, and the line between lament and just straight up complaining isn't always going to be clear to us. We're going to need help. We're going to need wisdom. We're going to need friends to help us see the difference. I'm just mention that right now, but but lament is different from discontentment. It is not the same thing as complaining. It is justified. It is invited by God. It's simple and straightforward talking to God about what you're experiencing. You don't need it when you shoot higher than you wanted to on the golf course. There are times when there's nothing but lament that will do. For example, Matthew six, Jesus is talking about promises that God loves us, he's for us, he sees and cares about what happens to us. In Matthew 6, he compares the the, the sparrow to to people made in God's image. He says, look, there's not even a sparrow that falls to the ground without the notice of your father. He sees that. And you're of more value to him than, than many sparrows, Jesus said. So of course he's got you. Of course he notices what's happening to you. But if it's true that, that the father notices when even a sparrow falls to the ground dead, then why are hundreds of thousands of babies killed every year in the U.S. alone through abortion? How long, Lord? Psalm 34 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, that the Lord saves those who are crushed in spirit. Why have so many African Americans, many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ, lived and died in slavery or under severe legal persecution or with inherited inequities in income and housing and incarceration and in every other metric you want to apply to it with little signs of change after decades upon decades? Why, Lord? How long? The Bible speaks from beginning to end about 
God's wisdom and, and love and sovereignty. Too many places to count. That he rules over all with a wisdom that we could never imagine. So why do so many children suffer neglect and abuse while faithful Christians struggle with infertility and grieve with their longing for children? Why does that happen? Why, Lord? How long, Lord? Why do drug kingpins live in luxury on the backs of those they exploit, exploiting their pain and their despair? When Christians in North Korea lose everything they own and spend their lives in prison for no other reason than that they believe in God and aren't willing to deny Him. Why? How long, Lord? Some of the Bible's laments are corporate like this. They focus on social problems. We're going to see plenty of that. Some of them are personal. They focus on internal anguish that only that individual will ever be able to understand. Some of them are over suffering in the world. Some of them are over sin that's in you that you wish wasn't, that you want to be free from and can't seem to shake. There are lots of reasons and lots of ways to lament, but lament always comes from a gap between things we believe to be true about the Bible, about God from his word, and the things we experience and see around us. At root, lament comes from this gap. That's where it comes from. It's a unique problem believers face. Now, one of the main goals for the series will be helping you to understand what lament looks like so that you can use it. We have a very practical purpose for this series. Lament is not just something that the Bible includes as a record of Israel's own experience in Israel's time and place. Lament is in the Bible today because God wants us to pray to him like this when we don't understand. Because it honors him when we come to him with the things we wish were different. When we are where we are and who we are in front of him, he's happy about it. That's why lament is preserved for us in the Bible. And what we want to learn from this series is how to use it well, both for our own, our own experiences and to, as our prayers for each other. So what does lament look like? That's what we're hoping you'll come away with this, this summer. One pastor who's recently written on lament, a guy named Mark Rogup, who pastors up in Indianapolis, um, he offers a really helpful breakdown of what lament looks like. And I'm just going to use that. And, and the other guys who are going to preach, we're going we're to we're draw from his breakdown of what it looks like and come back to it as we go into specific texts that, that, that show us lament, helping you to see these four steps that you can take in order to do lament. This is an original to, to Mark. Uh, I just like the way he frames it best. It's something a lot of people have noticed in their study of lament, but I like his breakdown and his terminology. So we're just going to use it. Four steps. And I want to introduce you to those four steps this morning briefly, and we're going to come back to them uh, as we keep moving through the series this summer. So four steps. Here's the first step. The first step on lament, this one's going to sound obvious, but you can't miss how important this step is. The first step on lament is always to turn to God. Lament begins with a turning to God. It's what separates lament from mere frustration or venting or resignation or despair. Lament brings God into the pain and the confusion. Lament invites him to be a presence there, to be with you there, to be a voice and an agent. Lament Lament is honest with God about what you're thinking, but by, bringing, by coming to him with it, not assuming that you see everything you need to. Turning to God is faithful, even when what you're turning to him with is complaints, because it honors him as a God who listens, as a God who can respond, 
as a God who can change what you see, what you experience, or what you feel. He has that power. So, so lament always starts by that act of faith, turning to him. Lament is unique to the believer. It's an expression of faith, not a lack of it, to, to, to on, on, honestly and clearly express to God what you wish were different about your experience. I mean, it is God's existence that creates this problem. It's what intensifies our pain and our confusion. So praying to him about your experience honors him. We're going we're gonna to practice turning to God together through this series. The second step in lament is really the heart of lament. Step number two is to complain, to complain to God about what you're experiencing. Mark Vrogup says that complaint and our laments fall between anger and denial. I love that. I think that's exactly right. Lament is how you avoid anger on the one hand, where you're just mad about what you're experiencing. And denial on the other hand, where you're pretending like everything's fine or suppressing what you're experiencing. Lament falls in between. It's honest. It doesn't shy away. But it's also bringing it to God as one who listens and cares. It's not just venting and it's not suppression. It's telling God what you see. It's asking him why because you don't understand. The Bible never expects you to pretend like things are better than they are. Never. It never expects you to put on a happy face. Lament gives you the permission. Oh, friends, even more more than that. Lament invites you. It is God's invitation to you to be with him where you are as you are. Now, now obviously, there's a kind of complaining. I mentioned this earlier. We're going to try to parse this out as we move through the series. There is a kind of complaining that, that the Bible condemns. A kind of complaining that's that's more a sense of entitlement to something better, a kind of arrogant assumption that you see everything that is, that, that you would have done a better job of running the universe if you had been where he is, if you were in God's position. I mean, I, I, I'm a horrible example of this. I, I often catch myself complaining about things that, that are really just wonderful privileges most people in the history of the world could never have enjoyed that come with a, a slight downside. I'm going to be on vacation this week. My family and I are going on our annual sojourn down to the panhandle of Florida where we will sit in paradise and have some of the best times we're ever going to have. And I'm going to have to catch myself and stop myself from complaining about the fact that taking three young children on my vacation means I won't rest. (laughs) I'm going to have to catch myself, stop myself from complaining that I won't have a restful vacation. Because instead, I'm going to be having some of the best times I'm ever going to have. And that just shows you I, there's a complaining heart in me, a, a, a contrariness in me that needs to die. I need to die to self there. That is not the time for lament. And if the series that we're going to be in together this summer is just going to justify our first world surprise at anything that doesn't suit our design for our lives, it'll be way off the mark. But... If it lands where we hope it will and where we pray that it will. It'll give us a way to be honest about where we are that honors God rather than judges him. So humility is, is crucial for biblical lament. We're not talking about standing in judgment over him. Job is a great example of this. There's a point in Job where Job crosses that line and God puts him back in his place. And lament, we don't stand in judgment over God. 
It's not saying I deserve better. In, in fact, often in, in the Bible, lament is inspired by sins I've committed. That's one main category for lament, is wishing that I were different than what I am. Lament is, is not arrogant judgment of God. Here's what it is. It is saying this hurts. I, I don't want this in my life. I don't understand why you want this, God, when you promise that you love me. Lament is not claiming I see everything. It's just being honest about what I do see and bringing that straight to God. I hope that makes sense. That difference makes sense. In lament, we don't stand over God as if we see everything and, and we would have pulled, pushed those buttons differently than he did, pulled those strings differently than he did. We don't claim to have a God's perspective on, on, on our experience and what's going on in the world. All we're saying is that based on what I do see, I'm hurting. I don't want this in my life. I don't understand how this could be good. What are you doing here? That's the kind of complaint, the kind of honesty that lament invites us to. That's what it looks like to complain before him. One writer describes this kind of lament as making a case against God based on God's own promises. Taking God's promises, throwing them at him. With questions about what we're seeing now, comparing what is to what he's promised. So next week, Matt, will, will, Matt Gibbons will be diving into the first of our lament psalms that we're going to consider this summer. A few of the weeks we're going to spend in the psalms because there's so many lament psalms there. Listen to, the, listen to this from Matt's sermon text. It's your appetite. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Behind that anguish is promises that God will be with them, be their God, be for them. The law is full of those promises. In arrogance, he says, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Aren't you close to the poor? Aren't you for them? Let them be caught in the schemes they've devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked doesn't seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. He's calling your bluff, Lord. Where are you? And yet his ways prosper at all times. His, your judgments are on high out of his sight. He doesn't see them. He puffs at his foes and he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Why do you stand far away, O oh Lord? Examples like this are all over the Psalms. We're going to consider a few of them this summer. They're all through a book called Lamentations that we're going to consider through the month of July. That isn't pretending to stand in judgment over God. It's an honest question and a complaint about the reality he sees that he can't square with what he knows about God. So we're going to practice complaining. That's step number two. First, we turn to God. When we turn to him, we turn to him with complaints about what we see and can't make sense of. Here's step number three. Step number three is to ask him, to ask boldly. So, so one crucial difference between lament and just simple complaining is that though lament involves complaint, it never stops there. It doesn't stop at complaint. It moves, keeps moving. It's a launching pad into deeper and more desperate and more focused prayer for help. Lament is always a prayer for help. 
And in that sense, lament treats God as if he cares. It's treating him as if he cares despite what you see. As if he's able to do something despite our weakness. So back to Psalm 10. Look at these requests. Arise, O Lord, verse 12. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Those are bold requests. Those are specific. Verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. He's using his arm to hurt people. Break it. Do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Verse 18. Because justice is not happening right now. And you say that you care about justice. So do it. Do justice. These are bold asks. They are clear and they are focused and they are desperate. And friends, honesty about what's wrong fuels, fuels prayer like this. There's a kind of looseness, familiarity, casualness to our prayers sometimes when we're comfortable. Or we just string together phrases we know we're supposed to use. But, but when, you, when you pray from lament, there is a despair that drives what you say. Gives it focus and energy you can't get any other way. Prayer like this is what helps us offload our responsibility. That, a responsibility that's too heavy for us to carry. And it honors him when we toss it onto his shoulders. We're going to see a lot of examples of this, of what to ask God throughout the series. That's going to be one of the things we pay attention to as we move from, from text to text. What kind of things does a lament prayer ask of him? But you've already seen a few just from what I read you from Psalm 10. Here are a few other ones. Psalm 25, remember your steadfast love from of old. That's a common prayer from a lament to God. Remember what you said. Remember the love you've promised to give me. Remember. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, the sinner. Have mercy. I wouldn't have mercy on me. Will you? Or Psalm 28, hear me, Lord. Don't be deaf to my cries. Or perhaps my favorite of all, and this comes up many times, and I think, friends, this is something you can pray no matter what. When you've got nothing else that you can muster, you can pray with the words Shaka will preach to us from in Psalm 22 in a couple of weeks. You can pray, God, be not far from me when trouble is near. You can pray that God will be with you when you're, when you're desperate. That prayer is always there, always available to you. And it's a bold ask that you're invited to give. There's one more step in the four steps of lament. So ask, step number three. Step number four is to trust. Trust them. Choose to trust them. We've said that, that lament always involves honesty. It always involves complaints that hold nothing back. It involves bold requests of God that are based on what he says about himself, what the writers are seeing around him, that gap between what he says and what they see. Bold requests in the midst of that gap. So lament always involves that kind of honesty. But at the, the, the end, the goal of lament in the Bible, the focus of this journey through pain is always trust in the God who's your only hope. That's always the goal. That's what it's there for. And you're going to see as we move through the series, one after another writer in the Bible choose to trust in God. And you're going to see them choose to trust in God not because their situation has changed at all. 
You're going to see them choose to trust in God when nothing has changed yet because they remember his goodness and decide to put everything on him. So in Psalm 10, I've already read from a couple times, verse 14, or, or um, a, little bit, a little bit further down in the psalm, when, when he makes this jump to requests, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Verse 14, he makes this jump to trust. It seems like God doesn't see. Now he says, you, you do note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself and you have been the helper of the fatherless. He's reminding himself and continues on from there. He know, he, he's not starting fresh with God. He's experienced God's goodness. He's seen it in action. They have history together. He's pulling from that history together to, to choose to trust God again despite what he sees around him. Verse, uh, or Psalm 13 is one we'll get to near the end of the series later in the month of June. It's another how long, O Lord, psalm. But listen to how it ends. All of the, he, he, he lists out what he sees. He prays boldly to God, asking God to change things. And then in verse 5, while things are still exactly where they were, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. But I have trusted. Now, what you're going to need to notice about these jumps to trust that laments make so often is that they, they aren't actually happy endings. Not yet. And sometimes these lament psalms can frustrate hurting people because they're reading along the psalm and they're like, yeah, I get that. I've asked that. I've been there. That's where I am. And it sounds really, really uh, immediately useful to them until that moment when the psalms jump into trust. And then they, they don't make that jump with them. And it can feel like, oh, you just, you're just pretending. Or, or like, why, why put a bow on this? Why wrap it all up and resolve it so nicely at the end? you're missing a key word here though if you think these psalms are resolved these psalms are built on contrast between what the writer sees and what he's trusting that jump comes with a but or a yet the wicked prosper in all his ways he says there is no God and he gets away with it but I will trust in the steadfast love of the Lord yet I will sing to the Lord who has dealt bountifully with me. There's a jump that's being made here before anything has changed. You have to choose to trust God before you're convinced. Now, no one will be able to make that jump for you. What we're going to see modeled in the lives of these writers and the perspectives that they bring to us is, is a choice to trust that you'll be invited to make with them. But, but ultimately, you'll have to be the one to make it. Don't think about this choice, though, as a return to some sort of resignation, as some sort of decision to just keep stuffing the pain back down in there. This isn't a choice to suppress. This is a trust that Mark Vrogup refers to as an active patience. I love that. I think that's exactly right. An active patience. Active because you have to practice it. You have to keep working it. You have to keep praying lament prayers. Active because you only get to this trust through honesty about what's wrong. Because you only get to this trust through an honesty about what's wrong followed by reminders to yourself about what God has been, what he has done, what he has said. 
It's active patience. It's not resignation. For Israel, and you'll see this in some of the lament psalms we're going to cover, it was often a reminder that God had been for them when they were slaves in Egypt. That God showed up for them when they had nowhere else to turn and he did deliver them and promised he would keep on doing that. They remind themselves of who God had been to them in their past so that they can make that jump to trust even though nothing is changing in their present. For Christians, of course, we're going to be pulling from something even more clear, even more vivid, even more powerful as a benchmark in our past that shapes our hope for the future. As Christians, we're going to be looking to the cross of Jesus what that exodus event in Israel's past was meant to point to and help get us ready for. If you're not a Christian here this morning, one of the things you need to know about Christians and what we believe is that, is that everything about our lives we're trying to view through God's love for us in Jesus. What we believe is that the God who made us, whose very existence we deny on a daily basis when we choose our own way over his, has chosen to respond to our sin, our neglect, our rejection of him by coming close to us in Jesus. That while we ran from him, he drew near to us. And it was not easy for him to do that because for him to be close to us meant we would have to become pure again. That he's too holy to to tolerate sin. He doesn't shrug his shoulders at at our sin. He deals with it. And what it takes for for God to deal with the sin that each one of us has been guilty of is the life of his son Jesus who died so that we wouldn't have to. When we look at at, at the gospel message that Christians are clinging to as our only hope in life and in death, what we look at is a picture of God's love for us and how far he's willing to go to make sure we have what we need. And what that lens does for us when we look at our own pain is reminds us that even though we may not understand, we may still have all the same questions that the, that the biblical writers had about why God is allowing things into our lives that he's allowing, about why things are going the way they're going for us. We may still have all those questions. We are not starting from scratch with him. We ask our questions on the backside of clear evidence that God is for us and that whatever else he may be doing in our lives, he is redeeming us from sin and death. And one day he'll make all things new. He would not risk the life of his son on a failed errand. So one of the things we do to choose trust is remember, active patience is constant memory. That that is who he is to us, whatever else we may see. That's what lament looks like, friends. It's four steps that every one of us can take at any time, no matter what we're going through. We turn to God. We honestly complain to him about what we see. We tell him where we are. We ask him to do something about it. And then we choose to trust him. I want to finish this morning by planting a couple of seeds for you about why this series, why lament which is the subject of this series, is so essential for us. I want to plant two seeds and then pray that God will bless our time together in his word. The first seed I want to plant just to, 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 to prepare you for what's coming. Why, why we believe focusing on this type of material is so important for our church's life together. The, the first one is, is that you're suffering or you will suffer. You either are suffering now or you will suffer. 
uh, you need to know that the Bible accounts for your experience. That God has given you this gift of lament so that you can live with faith in your pain. Without an awareness of lament, without knowing that this kind of material is in the Bible, then you may be tempted to read and misapply other strands of what the Bible teaches. For example, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, he says, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, no matter what the circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That's in the Bible. That's good for us. God means for us to have that. We should pray for the kind of contentment that Paul had. But you could read Paul's words there in Philippians 4 and think that that means your pain is a failure of faith. Or you could assume that the fact that you're not okay with what is, that you wish things were different, means you need to repent and believe that you're just not believing enough. And I think Paul knew about suffering on a level few of us will, will ever experience. And he did learn to be content. And that's wonderful. That's a worthy prayer. We should pray for the kind of contentment in the midst of, of suffering that Paul knew. And it's true that discontent is a serious problem, especially in middle class Western life. But friends, if the only category you have to make sense of your suffering and your pain is discontent... Well, then you're going to feel like a failure or you're going to feel like you need to keep your mouth shut till you're ready to give the after to this before you're living in. As if you shouldn't say anything at all if you can't say something nice and tidy. But, but, but the Bible's teaching on the mint is going to show you that that's just not true. It's, it's not true. God invites you to express what you think, what you feel as you are. And he's invited you to do that by filling up his word to us with laments. The Psalms, one of the most classic, beautiful expressions of how people should relate to God is full of lament prayers. Roughly 40% of the Psalms complain to God about what's happening. And if we, if we as, as we trust, God has, has chosen his words carefully so that we have exactly what he wants us to have, then that means he has himself placed lament at the heart of his relationship to you. So the pain you feel is no failure. It's where he wants to meet you. Hopefully this series will help you learn how to use it, this tool. And here's the second seed I want to plant. The other reason this, that the lament is essential and that we're spending a whole summer with it is that it's not just that you're suffering or you will. It's that your friends are suffering and we're supposed to mourn together. Uh, one of the most common experiences for people who are in deep pain is isolation. Pain disorients them. So what they once took for granted is now upended. Can't take it for granted anymore. What they once talked about with their friends seems like it's foreign or pointless. They're not in a place to come on a Memorial Day weekend to church and talk about where everybody's going to the beach this summer. The, the things we used to just chat about, pass the time with, those are gone for them. And so it can feel isolating, like your life just got transported to some sort of alien planet. Recently I read a, just a powerful and vivid 
um, memoir of, of a woman, young woman who's facing death to cancer, a book by a woman named Kate Bowler called Everything Happens for a Reason. There's this one place in her memoir where she's talking about this isolation that, that the suffering often feel amongst the young and the healthy and the happy. She, uh, she says, it's like we're all floating on the ocean, holding onto our own inner tubes. We're all floating around, but, but people don't seem to know that we're all sinking. Some are sinking faster than others, she says, but we're all sinking. I keep having the same unkind thought. I'm preparing for death and everyone else is on Instagram. I sometimes feel like I'm the only one in the world who's dying. It's, this isolation is, is, a, is an active problem in our church right now. There are people in, in this room sitting here right now who feel like, uh, like, like, like they're alone in, in the pain that they experience. Many others of you have been there and have felt surely like you wished you had people deeper, there, deeper in there with you. And, and part of what you felt is, is a church still growing in its ability to care well for its own. Now, you've also probably had experiences caring for people who are deep in their pain. And maybe you've felt dwarfed by the challenges of those experiences. Like you know that there are some tools required here that you just don't have. You've reached as far as you can and you're not reaching far enough. You can feel like you just don't know what to say and that can make you avoid them. Our promise to mourn with those who mourn is a lot easier said than done. But God has not left us without help in this calling that he's given to us. One of the beautiful things about lament is that it is a ready-made tool that you can use with anybody, anytime, and you don't even have to come up with the right words because they're already there. You just pray them. You just turn to Psalm 13 and you pray with your friend, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? Consider, my friend, O Lord. Light up their eyes. Don't let them sleep the sleep of death. Help them to trust in your steadfast love. Lament is what you need when you don't know what to say because there's nothing to be said. And all of us need help in our clumsy, more harm than good, despite our best intentions, attempt to walk with each other through pain. Lament is going to give us an open door, an entry point. Now, it'll only happen if God chooses to bless our time together in his word. So I want to pray that that's what he'll do. I want to mention as well a couple other books that are going to be on the resource table. This one's called Being There, How to Love Those Who Are Hurting. Excellent book by a guy named Dave Furman who lives with chronic illness and has watched others try to help him and then writes to help others help others who are, hurt, who are hurting from his own experience. Rejoicing in Lament, which is a great introduction to what this category is in the Bible by a, a theologian with incurable cancer who's facing his own death using the tools of Lament to try to process it. A wonderful book that'll be on the resource table. And then Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by a pastor named Timothy Keller from up in New York City. Really helpful both for people who are in their own pain or walking with others who are, who are hurting. Take a look at these books on the resource table on your way out. I want to pray now that God will bless us as we enter his word together. Father, we know that we are not up to the challenges that our community presents to us. Challenges of 
of solidarity with one another in pain. And not one of us will be able to hold on to our faith if we're the one who's got to hold on. So we pray to you both that you would hold us and not let us go and that you would give us tools to be part of how you hold us in faith. We want to take up the task of walking carefully together in times that are hard. We pray that your word would give us what we need in Jesus' name. Amen.